Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. During a legislative hearing on PFAS, Republican Senator Rob Cowles of Green Bay said that the GOP may be willing to spend more in the upcoming budget on dealing with the toxic chemical. That's according to the Associated Press. It is expected that the governor will propose more than $100 million in his upcoming budget to address the PFAS problem. Most of the funds would be given to municipalities to test their water and mitigate the presence of the chemical. The legislative hearing focused on the research on PFAS in Green Bay. UW professor Christy Remuthal detailed the trail of PFAS from the Tyco plant in Marinette into ditches and then streams and rivers and then into Green Bay. A report by Wisp Politics found that the current bill for the Michael Gableman investigation of fraud during the 2020 election is up to $2 million and likely to continue upward from there. A number of legal cases have grown out of the initial litigation that will likely result in hundreds of thousands of dollars more in legal fees and potentially fines. Multiple recounts and court cases have affirmed that Joe Biden won the state of Wisconsin in 2020. The investigation found no evidence of widespread voter fraud in the state. Although Assembly Speaker Robin Voss fired Gableman months ago, he has continued to support litigation over the Speaker's refusal to turn over records. This case, in turn, resulted in a court order to pay the legal fees of the liberal plaintiff group American Oversight, which are just just short of $200,000. The state has spent more than $200,000 in attorney's fee to avoid the payment. UW System President Jay Rothman announced the results of the free speech survey taken by UW students last fall. The survey found that over half of the students who took the survey think a campus should disinvite speakers thought to be offensive and that most students feel comfortable talking about controversial issues. Although the survey was distributed to the 161,000 students in the UW system, only 10,000 or 6% of the possible respondents chose to complete the survey. The survey was sponsored and evaluated by UW-Stout's Menard Center for Public Policy and Service, who have been criticized for wording the survey in a way that would show that Republican viewpoints are suppressed on campus. The full survey can be found online on the UW System's website. Low- and middle-income homeowners looking to do minor or even major repairs on their homes may qualify for services from the nonprofit home repair organization Project Home. That's after the city of Madison announced that they're expanding their relationship with the organization. Currently, the two offer minor home repair program for services like window replacements and leaky faucets. Now Project Home will take over the major home repair program, which will help with larger projects such as roof repairs and replacement. Project Home would help applicants take out no-interest second mortgages to pay for the project to be repaid then when the home is sold or no longer the homeowner's main residence. To accomplish this, Project Home was awarded more than $1 million in federal grants to assist up to 144 homes on both major and minor home repairs. And those are today's top stories. Now on to the rest of the day's news. When we lay out salt to clear the ice and snow from our sidewalks, that salt has to go somewhere. 
Here in Madison, that somewhere is right into our lakes and waterways. While the city has taken strides to reduce salt use, UW-Madison came under fire on social media this weekend for the amount of salt they used to clear their roads and paths. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has more. Around nine inches of snow fell on Madison last weekend, and some roads around the city are still snow-covered, though by now it's been packed down and cleared. That's because the city decided not to salt most of the city's roadways and instead plowed and spread sand so cars could still drive through city streets. But it was a tale of two cities downtown as UW-Madison not only salted their roads and sidewalks, but are now being criticized for over-salting their pathways. Hillary Dugan is an assistant professor of limnology at UW-Madison, and as she biked around the city on Sunday, she saw a clear difference between bike trails maintained by the city and those maintained by UW-Madison. What we saw was the city out plowing. You know, they were plowing snow off the roads, but they weren't salting. And, you know, what I was noticing on the weekend, going from sort of city of Madison to UW-Madison campus, was just the, the different approach in road salt use and frustrated that, you know, we all can't be more tactful in ways to reduce road salt, which I think, you know, the city is doing a really good job at. In a post on Twitter, Dugan showed both a photo of a city bike path and a UW-Madison bike path. While the city path was covered in snow, the path on campus had piles of salt that covered the entire walkway. While salt can be used to melt ice and snow off of roads, paths, and sidewalks, it also poses a danger to area waterways. When the snow melts, the salt doesn't just disappear, it washes away with the snow melt, eventually making its way into area lakes and streams, Dugan says. But what we've seen over you know half a century is just the background salinity in the Madison Lakes getting saltier. Um, and certainly they have extremely high salt concentrations in some of the rivers and storm sewers in the in the winter during these sort of runoff events. And so aquatic organisms in Wisconsin are, you know, evolved to live in freshwater habitat. So as we increase the salinity, you know, we, we're, that's creating, a, you know, an adverse habitat for, for a lot of organisms. Additionally, salt is less effective at melting snow when the temperatures fall below 15 degrees. That's why when the forecast showed frigid temperatures to continue until next week, the city's streets division didn't spread salt after last weekend's snow. But UW-Madison says that their use of salt was necessary. A UW-Madison spokesperson told the Wisconsin State Journal yesterday that leaving the 60 miles of sidewalk and 13 miles of road that make up the UW campus unsalted would have been too dangerous. She added that campus staff are trained to use the minimum amount of salt possible and that they are focused on reducing salt use wherever and whenever possible. Brian Johnson with the city's street division says that throwing large amounts of salt won't always fix the problem of icy roadways. And I think it's just we sort of reflexively think more salt feels safer, but it doesn't do anything. You know, all it does is winding up in the waterways, you know, and so that even like the salt on your sidewalks, driveways, parking lots, roads, it all plays a role. In December, the city of Madison added new fines for property owners who use excessive salt with the express purpose of reducing the amount of salt that ends up in area waterways. While the ordinance change is focused on educating the community on excessive salt first, violators could face a $50 fine the first time around and up to $100 in subsequent cases where property owners overdump.
The city will begin to clear off their roads tomorrow when the weather is a bit warmer for the salt to be effective. Even then, Johnson says that they won't be throwing salt across the whole city. Instead, they will focus on areas where compacted snow still sits in the roadways. We're going to have an opportunity tomorrow to kind of bust that up over those major thoroughfares. Now, a lot of the places, it's already melted down to bare pavement from people either tracking salt from other sources and pavement just gets warmer from car traffic anyway. So there's some spots that are fine, but there's still like some turn lanes or other shadier areas that still have that sort of persistent hard pack of snow on there on the main routes that we don't want. So we're going to be running the salt routes starting tomorrow morning and just trying to dribble salt out in those spots where that snow pack is still covering the whole traffic lane on those major thoroughfares. Hillary Dugan says that she isn't calling for road salt to be banned and applauds the city's efforts to be more salt conscious with their roads. But still, she says that mountains of salt when it's too cold to effectively melt snow will only cause more issues down the line. Last week marked Wisconsin Salt Awareness Week. For guidance and more info on when and how much salt to use after a snowstorm, visit WisconsinSaltWise at WISaltWise.com. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. There's a push in Wisconsin to shake up how voters consider candidates for federal offices. Final five voting, as it's called, is described as a hybrid system involving instant runoff elections. Supporters say it could foster a more productive political environment, and one grassroots group is trying to spread the message. Here's Mike Mullen from the Wisconsin News Connection. Polls often show dissatisfaction among voters with the current political system. An emerging alternative to standard elections is getting some attention in Wisconsin, with organizers touting such benefits as less negative campaigns. What's known as Final Five voting has been adopted in a couple states, and there's a proposal in Wisconsin. The process involves sending the top five vote-getters in a primary race from all parties combined to the general election. Voters would then get to rank them on their general election ballot. Danny Akinson with the Bridge the Divide initiative says it compels candidates to ditch the toxic nature of campaigns. What that sort of incentivizes is for people to be a little less hostile when they're running against their fellow candidates because instead of just getting one vote from someone, you have to get their second place vote or their third place vote. For the general election, the person in first place would need to get more than 50% of the vote or an instant runoff would occur. Wisconsin's bill to adopt this process has bipartisan support, but it's unclear if legislative leaders will allow debate. Policy analysts say while Final Five voting is worth exploring, there might be unintended consequences, including confusing the voters. Akinson says Bridge the Divide is educating western Wisconsin residents through social gatherings where attendees can practice Final Five voting by ranking things like desserts. He feels this process could be appealing to most voters, because they would no longer feel powerless when casting their ballot, potentially boosting turnout in the primaries. The primary elections have become increasingly sort of dangerous for candidates to run in. Just about 15 or 20 percent of Wisconsinites show up in the primary elections. However, last year the state did see its highest primary turnout in 40 years and nearly 26 percent. The Wisconsin plan would first cover races for federal seats only. Organizers say depending on its effectiveness, it could be expanded down the road. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
We continue our coverage of the spring primary election for District 12 Alder with Josh Walling. A carpenter by trade, Walling spoke with WORT producer Nate Wiggyhaupt about why he decided to run to represent District 12. The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 12 on the east side of Madison, containing the Dane County Airport down to the Yahara River over at Burr-Jones Park off of East Johnson. One of the five candidates running in that primary election is Josh Walling, who joins me now by phone. Josh, thank you so much for talking with me today. Hello, thanks for having me. So just to start things off here, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Let's see, my name's Josh Walling. I'm a longtime east side and north side resident. I have raised my family right here on the north side. I've also owned a business and I, my school background, I have gone to East, La Follette, Shabazz, MATC, and the UW. When I was at the UW, I studied uh, political science, and uh, now I'd like to give back from my experiences and my knowledge of the East Side by providing public service and representing the people of the East Side. And what do you do professionally now? Professionally, I've been working as a carpenter and project manager for home construction and remodeling. And now, Josh, why are you running for Alder here in Madison? Well, I'd like the Alder that's representing my district to think of the needs of the current residents that live here. I believe that some of the growth is excessive and the population density is getting uh, excessive And I think that the residents that currently live here don't want the population to be 50% denser or, you know, they don't want quite as many of these huge apartment buildings being built in their space. And, and, And also, I just generally love politics and have always considered it my life's mission to go into politics. And have you have you ever previously held any elected office? No, I have not. And just sticking with you for just a little while longer, uh, Josh, what do you do in your spare time? Well, I've still got uh, two teenage kids and a house to manage, and I'm single parenting 50% of the time. So I'm pretty busy just trying to keep up with everything that's going on. But I do enjoy snowboarding, playing chess, playing hacky sack, and but but honestly i've been i've been busy being a parent and now let's turn our eyes a little bit onto the the city itself what are the most pressing issues facing madison that you would want to address i know you already mentioned it a little bit there but what would you like to address as older well i'd like to uh see our city on a course to become a model for, uh, for a green city for the world uh, I would like our transportation systems to re- just become more green, reduce the carbon footprint of the city, and try to keep Madison, Madison. I don't want it to be Chicago or Milwaukee. I want it to be Madison. 
and uh, protect the multicultural identity that Madison has and I think is is one of its big strengths. I would like to, although I think that the Madison police are better than most forces and do a pretty darn good job, I would still want to hold them accountable and make sure that they're uh, equipped with body cameras, which just uh, lets everybody know they're going to be accountable, including themselves. <laughs> so, although I appreciate that the police keep keep us safe, I think they need to be accountable while they're doing their work, and uh, that keeps us safe from them. Now I want to dive into a couple key issues sort of facing the city of Madison right now. And you mentioned transit there, so let's start off with that. Now bus rapid transit is going to be coming to Madison pretty soon here. How do you feel about uh, the bus rapid transit and the uh, bus system here in Madison? That's that's one of the ones that I haven't had enough uh, time to dig into. I would want the bus systems to just to fan out a little bit better into the neighborhoods so that people wouldn't have to walk a half a mile or a mile to get to a bus stop. And I guess that's it. And now you mentioned housing there before as well. What would you sort of like to see here in Madison to bring more housing into the city? Well, everybody wants more housing, but uh, I I would prefer to uh, spread that housing out and not just make the the city more and more dense. And I guess I'm a little bit in the corner of slowing down the growth a little bit and uh, not just building huge apartment buildings so that all of our houses are in the shadows of huge apartment buildings. So if that means that that uh, development and growth has to move to the outskirts of town, so be it then. And I I was wondering if you could go into that a little bit more. You said, you know, sort of spread out the housing a little bit. Uh, can can you sort of explain what you mean by that? Well, let's see. There's a lot of businesses and houses that have had huge apartment buildings built right on top of them, uh, uh, supplanting the business and changing the dynamics of the neighborhoods and just increasing the population density. I don't think that's in the best interest of all of the people that live in that neighborhood. It might be in the best interest of the developers, and it might solve some housing problems for the city, but the people that I would represent would be the people from the north side of Madison here that want their neighborhood to kind of stay a little bit the same. So, I mean, I'm not, not adamant on this. I'm not going to work against every... Pr- every project, but I would definitely uh, try to see a consensus in the neighborhood of whether these things are wanted or not before I, I would vote for approving them. And now the final issue that I really want to dig into here is the F-35 fighter jets, which are set to be landing in Madison later this spring. Now, this is a little bit more handled at the county level, but this does have pretty big implications, especially for District 12 there. How do you feel about the F-35 jets? Obviously, I'm against them, and I would not want them to be doing their practicing and their takeoffs right here in our neighborhood. I don't see the city being able to stop it. I don't. I don't know how they'd stop it, but uh, 
I I would be against it. Now, you know, sort of wrapping things up here a little bit, Josh, sometimes issues get pretty complicated at the city council. Now, let's say that you have an issue where some of your constituents want to see some sort of policy happen and you have other constituents that want to see the exact opposite. How would you how would you handle that situation? Well, in that situation, I would uh, have to hear the arguments of both sides and pretty much be the arbiter of that, that discussion and uh, do uh, do then what I think is in the best interest of the city and the community. It, this is assuming that the issue is fairly evenly div- divided. If uh, my constituency spoke out strongly in one direction or another, I would listen to the constituents. And do you have just any final thoughts, any you know, parting thoughts that you'd like to give us before we leave here? Just that uh, I love Madison a lot. I would serve it well. And I, you know, I, I, I love the LGBT community and want the city to be green, want the city to be safe. I've been talking with Josh Walling, one of the five candidates running in the February primary election for District 12. That primary election takes place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Josh, thank you again uh, for coming on and talking with me today. All right. Thank you. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Last week, Governor Tony Evers delivered his State of the State address, where he outlined some of his proposals for his proposed 2023 budget. With that budget expected to be released later this month, a public affair host, Carousel Baird, spoke with Jesse Apoyan with the Capital Times and Philip Rocco at Marquette University about what to expect with this year's budget proceedings. This is just a portion of their full conversation, which can be found online at wortfm.org. Phil, why don't you kick us off? Can you just sort of tell us big picture what is the Wisconsin budget session sort of look like, as we said, every two years? What is the process? Okay, I, I want to begin by, yeah, just noting, I think in your intro, you kind of said, well, but budgeting can sort of, you imply that like budgeting can be kind of boring, but it's actually really important. And I would just underline that, like bud, you know, the state budget is really where most of the important policy decisions sort of get, get made. Um, every two years, the way that state government works. And it really begins um, in the kind of even numbered uh, year. So last year, agencies uh, of the Wisconsin state government submitted budget proposals uh, to the governor. The governor's office kind of takes those things, looks at them, and then develops a proposal of his own. And you heard probably some of what that's going to look like in the state of the state address, although right. the, I think the formal document isn't out yet. Then the governor sends his proposal to this really powerful committee in the state legislature called the Joint Finance Committee. The Joint Finance Committee, you know, prepares its own version. And that usually, at least when we have divided government, is is sort of now the the permanent norm uh, in Wisconsin. Um, That usually looks a lot different than the governor's budget. I think, you know, last 
uh, time around. It was about $5 billion or so dollars less in the governor's budget, as you can expect with sort of partisan uh, differences. And then it goes to one of the other houses. The houses develop a, of the Assembly uh, and the Senate developed a, a conference committee a version of the legislation, then it goes back to the governor. And then it's not done at that point. The, you know, Wisconsin's governor office has, is sort of notable for having one of the most powerful kind of veto pens in the entire country, although that sort of power has been diminished uh, to some extent in recent years. Uh, but the governor still has the ability to strike a lot kind of out of that budget at, you know, before it goes into uh, law. So that's really what we're going to see. And I think the, the, the most immediate thing people can expect is after the uh, governor's budget is released, the Joint Finance Committee is going to hold hearings in different parts of the state. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a good opportunity for people to sort of get out there. I don't think that they've released their calendar for those yet, but but keep in mind that's going to happen um, over the next few weeks to a month. And this whole process, in theory, is takes around six months. It, it starts at the beginning of the year, which is where we are, where there's talk, but nothing official put out yet. And the goal is to have this passed by June. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think I think that's about right. Although in practice, it, it can extend a lot longer. It can take a long. Yeah. And then, Phil, can you talk to us about how how this year is different than other years mainly there's a budget surplus and i mean i wrote in my notes 7.1 billion is is that usual yeah it's not usual at all um it's it's pretty rare to see something even if there is a surplus that it's it's quite this large and one way of thinking about this is like this is not it's been suggested that this is a budget surplus indicates that we're taxing people too much or that that there's sort of like a surplus of taxes. That's not true. Uh, we're at the lowest tax burden since we started recording those statistics. Okay. The reason for this wow. is that we have a sort of one-time thing that happened, which is over the last few years during the pandemic, Congress passed a few major pieces of relief legislation you know, that resulted in billions and billions of dollars for state and local governments in uh, Wisconsin. The federal government also took on a larger share of other kind of program costs through unemployment, Medicaid to some extent. And uh, at the same time, the state has sort of been pretty aggressive in not increasing its spending. If you think about revenue sharing to local governments, that hasn't been in, in adjusted for inflation since the middle of the 1990s. So like that's sort of emblematic of the state not being super aggressive in, in increasing its spending year over year, yeah. uh, adjusted for inflation. And so what that leaves you with is a sort of one-time budget surplus. And so naturally, like you would think, oh, that's a great thing. But what that means is there's a lot of surface area for political conflict over how uh, they're going to use, uh, the state's going to use that surplus. And, and that's probably, you know, that's that's what people are seeing. Jesse, I, w- I want you to sort of chime in here. What before we get into some specifics, what is the feel that's happening right now at the state legislature when you're on Capitol Hill on a regular basis? I mean, it's it's not dissimilar from years past, you know, despite the fact that this massive surplus exists. Um, I think a lot of the same dynamics are at play that always have been in divided government, which is that there's that kind of push and pull between Republicans looking at the pile of money and saying, send it back into people's pockets and Democrats looking at the pile of money and saying, send it back into programs throughout the state um, or send it back into education funding, send it back into local government funding. Now, one difference though, is that there is some agreement on those two things that I just mentioned. Republicans and Democrats both agree that local governments need more funding that, you know, that they can't provide 
the level of services that they need to for things like public safety um, and other just basic services without some sort of increase and perhaps even some sort of you know overhaul in the way that those funds are, are allocated. Um, and the same is true of uh, K-12 education. Um, you know, Phil mentioned that that influx of federal funding and in the last round of budgeting, the budget was able to really kind of do less with state dollars because of all of, or do more rather with fewer state dollars because of the federal money that was coming in with the understanding that, you know, that money isn't always going to be there. So in this next round of budgeting, the one that we're in right now, you're probably going to have to see an increase in Mm -hmm. state spending on schools uh, to make up for uh, the, I guess the cliff that, you know, that we're going to reach as those federal funds start to, uh, to go away. So tell us about some of the specifics that you're hearing. Let's start with school funding. And uh, I will note that uh, an article written by you, co-written by you and Scott Gerard, just came out on the Cap Times website uh, talking specifically about the issues of school funding. And this has really been a contentious issue. Our governor, uh, the former superintendent of schools for the state of Wisconsin, has been a huge proponent of putting more money in public schools and where does where does the republicans that control the state legislature fall on that and is the word public schools versus schools a key divider in that um it can be to an extent um again i think there is agreement that the public schools do need more funding um on, on by both parties you know senate senate majority leader devin lemme who's a republican i think probably said it best in that what the governor believes to be a massive increase. It's probably not the same as what Republicans in the legislature believe to be a massive increase in public school funding. Um, so, you know, when you say things like that, it could be you know very subjective. Um, you know, the governor's looking at like $2 billion. I don't think you're going to see legislative Republicans get to that number. But something that has been mentioned, I think by Speaker Robin Voss particularly, is knowing that both sides aren't going to get what they want, right? Republicans aren't going to get an expansion to, to universal school choice Tony Evers is probably not going to get $2 billion in K-12 public school funding. Are there ways that they can reach some sort of agreement? So can you try to you know, reach parity between payment for uh, public school teachers and private school teachers? Can you make it easier for students to transfer from one school to another? Those are things that Republicans would be happy to see uh, in exchange for maybe meeting some of the governor's goals on um, those increases to public school funding. You know, something that stopped happening quite some time ago is tying those increases to inflation. It's uh, sort of the same thing as, as the gas tax and that I think a lot of people agree that it might be a good way to to fund those programs, but it's really going to be hard to get anyone to make that change now that it doesn't work that way anymore. We'll probably hear some conversations about tying increases to the sort of the per pupil system. So trying to make the, the money follow the students as best as they can. Well, it's been really fabulous talking with the both of you and, and really hearing about all this. And definitely, you've definitely both laid out all the different issues that can still come up and there's a lot at play. So it's just been great to have you both here to lay the groundwork of the conversation that's going to be happening in Wisconsin for the next several months. I appreciate it. Thank that's you. That's a great conversation. Thank you. It's been great, great being to with have you. you. Yes. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. 
Well, despite having been anomalously warm and non-snowy through much of January, the month has ended just barely achieving its expected snowfall. We ended with 13.9 inches officially at the airport, so that was actually a couple of tenths better than the average of 13.7 for January. Uh, More than 10 inches of that, incidentally, came down just in the final week of the month. The temperature anomaly was too big to be undone by the uh, Arctic air incursion of the last few days, so January 2023 will go into the record books 7.6 degrees above normal. We did have temperatures, uh, a temperature surplus more than 11 degrees above normal as late as last week. (coughs) Pardon me. We started February below zero this morning, and although we're about to get a refresher of our Arctic air, uh, much of the rest of the forecast period... Uh, and indeed, the next couple of weeks looks to be at or above normal so far as the temperatures are concerned. There are some differences between the longer-range models currently in terms of the timing of upcoming waves and indeed the overall upper air pattern across the continent. Uh, but all the models are showing a relatively active pattern across the Midwest with uh, less amplitude in the upper air than we've seen recently and some repeated incursions of warm air the way it's looking for us. Uh, Have a look at the water vapor image of North America that we have linked up in the featured graphics on the WORT weather webpage this evening, and you'll get a taste of that north-south amplitude that I was just referring to. With the northeastern two-thirds or so of the continent currently under an upper air trough, or at least that was true back at the beginning of the image loop a few days ago, the trough does lift out and moderate a bit over this past 24 hours or so, which of course was what allowed us to rise up into the mid-20s today after having got stuck in the single digits yesterday. You might note if you're looking at that image, the powerful subtropical jet branch that's coursing east-northeastward across Hexus currently and basically forming the southern end of the upper trough, I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast that that was likely to produce some overrunning and mixing of the two adjacent air masses down there. Uh, And unfortunately, that's largely taken the form of freezing rain with uh, consequent ice storm warnings now strung out for nearly a thousand miles across six states from West Texas over to Tennessee. Uh, Nothing nearly so dramatic coming up here. Uh, One more Arctic air mass uh, will be, uh, which is currently up in uh, northern Alberta, just off frame on the water vapor if you're looking at it. We'll be descending southeastward into the region tomorrow, pushing a cold front ahead of it through the area in the uh, earlier mid-morning hours. That uh, shouldn't produce a whole much uh, in the way of uh, passing cloud I should say that shouldn't produce much beyond passing cloud cover tomorrow, although uh, stronger winds and falling temperatures in the afternoon will make it obvious by then that Arctic air is on the way back in. Uh, This time around, though, the the cold isn't going to be here for very long. If you have the water vapor image up, you can also see a big upper ridge making headway inland off the Pacific Ocean, and uh, that and the warmer air that's below it will be bumping the Arctic high-pressure cell eastward out of the area as we go overnight Friday and through the day Saturday. Uh, So only one day of uh, single-digit highs this time around. Looking uh, further out, there's a bit of uncertainty in the medium and longer-range models currently, but a warmer and more active pattern next week looks fairly certain, and that may mean rain for us instead of snow this time around. But back to tonight, uh, skies should remain generally clear. We'll see some uh, passing mid-level clouds. Uh, Temperatures will drop back to the mid-teens on southwesterly winds up at 4 to 7 miles per hour. 
Tomorrow, clear skies are likely to see some increase in cloud cover as the cold front approaches and veers winds uh, westerly, uh, or veers westerly winds northwesterly in the mid after um, <laughs> mid morning. I'll get this right yet. Uh, we may see some uh, scattered uh, cumulus popping up in the afternoon as well, uh, perhaps in southeastward running uh, cloud streets as the temperatures cool fairly quickly up above ground level. Temperatures will reach uh, 20 or so in the morning, then drop towards about 10 during uh, by sundown as uh, northwesterly winds increase through the afternoon up to about 10 to 18 miles per hour. The thermometer will continue downward from there to the mid-single digits below zero by Friday morning as northwesterly winds come down to about 4 to 8 miles per hour. And then we'll do no better than about the mid-single digits above zero for a high temperature on Friday, though winds will be backing southerly that day at 3 to 7 miles per hour. And that'll set us up for what'll be a warming overnight period with temperatures reaching uh, back towards about 10 degrees or so by Saturday morning on increasing south winds. Incoming warm air is likely to uh, cascade some high and mid-level clouds across the skies. And Saturday should be windy and warmer, partly cloudy, with temperatures reaching the uh, low 30s on suddenly winds up at 10 to 20 miles per hour, a bit gusty too in the afternoon. We'll stay in that temperature range overnight with the winds uh, backing more westerly but staying fairly active, and Sunday will again be in the low 30s on breezy westerly winds. Uh, waves look to be passing next week around Tuesday and then again Thursday or Friday, the way it's appearing. And those, again, look to be rain producers for us. More details on that next week. At the moment, though, down at the station here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 21 degrees. The dew point temperature is 8. Uh, winds are quite light out of the southwest currently, generally below 5 miles per hour. Uh, we uh, have a thin overcast over the station at about 10,000 feet clear uh, currently, or it's a little clearer to the south of the station. Uh, the barometer is at 30.17 inches of mercury and steady over the past several hours. We go now to February 1965. As the UW's first ongoing anti-war protest group forms, the Daily Cardinal survives an attack by a powerful Republican legislator, and teenager Eugene P Parks speaks about leadership. Stu Levitan has the news from 58 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, February 1965 as the month opens, an attack on the UW's Daily Cardinal newspaper by a prominent conservative commentator and powerful state senator backfires and ends with the governor, regents, and administration giving strong support for the newspaper. In late January, right-wing radio talker Bob Segrist had revealed that Cardinal managing editor John Gruber rented a room at 515 West Johnson Street from Gene Dennis Jr., the son of the late head of the Communist Party USA, and that another renter, Michael Eisenscher was both the son of the former chair of the state Communist Party and a communist himself. The next day, Republican State Senator Jerris Leonard wrote Regent President Arthur DeBartle Baden that he was, quote, very much disturbed to learn about Gruber's rooming house relationship, quote, with known political leftists, a situation that he said, quote, has reached the point of absurdity, clearly appalling. 
Denouncing what he considered the Cardinals' left-oriented journalism, Leonard called on the regents to investigate Gruber's associations and intensively review the editorial policy of the Cardinal and report to the governor and legislature. If it is determined that Mr. Gruber's reported association influences the political tone of the Cardinal, Leonard wrote, it is clear that his removal must be sought. The assistant majority leader and chair of the powerful State Building Commission, which controls major university construction, Leonard issued a not-so-veiled threat that if the regents did not investigate and report within two weeks, he would call for a special legislative committee to study the matter and take appropriate action. As Segrist hammers away every night at the Cardinal staff and their friends, campus groups of all stripes rushed to the paper's defense, including the Young Republicans and the Interfraternity Council. When the regents meet on February 5, it's Leonard's letter, not Gruber's housing, that they find clearly appalling. Democrats and Republicans alike, labor leaders and industrialists, denounce what one calls a witch hunt and another equates with McCarthyism. Then they unanimously adopt a resolution that Regent Kenneth L. Greenquist, a former state commander of the American Legion, likens to the famed sifting and winnowing statement from 1894. Blustery right-wing state Senator Gordon Roslip tries to get the House Un-American Activities Committee to investigate, at the same time he demands a free subscription for all legislators, but Governor Warren Knowles, a Republican, ends the controversy by endorsing the regent's action a few days later. This is America, he says. Let's continue to have the right of free speech and free press. Two days after the regents meet, the American bombing of North Vietnam on February 7th sparks the creation of Madison's first ongoing anti-war protest organization, the Committee to End the War in Vietnam. On February 8th, the executive councils of both the university's Young Democrats and Young Republicans adopt resolutions endorsing the bombing. On February 9th, about 250 students march through freezing rain and an occasional hostile snowball from campus to the Capitol for a rally sponsored by a group organized by sophomore Daniel B. Friedlander calling itself the Ad Hoc Committee for Peace in Vietnam. Among the speakers are Professors William Gorham Rice, Joseph Elder, Francis D. Hole, Maurice Zeitlin, John Coatsworth, who violated the travel ban to Cuba in 1963, moderates the rally, which also features Hillel Foundation Director Rabbi Richard W. Winograd and mayoral candidate William Osborne Hart. But leaders of the major campus organizations, including the Wisconsin Student Association, Memorial Union, Associated Women's Students, and Interfraternity Council, issue a statement afterward declaring that a majority of students, quote, would not condemn the government for its recent actions in Vietnam. Madison police film and photograph the rally from the Capitol's second-floor balcony, ostensibly for training purposes. Some civil libertarians raise concerns but council conservatives block all attempts to question police chief Wilbur Emery on the full purpose or use of the films and photographs. The overt intelligence gathering soon becomes covert, with systematic police infiltration of the anti-war movement. On February 12th and 13th, the group, now calling itself the Committee to End the War in Vietnam, stages a 24-hour vigil on the Capitol steps, maintaining between 50 and 100 demonstrators through the 13-degree night. 
Several participants, including Liz Dennis and Stu Ewan, passed the time singing old rock and roll songs with new anti-war lyrics, while Professor William Appleman Williams, whose reputation as a revisionist historian of American diplomatic history was what brought Coatsworth to Wisconsin, shares a flask with sociology grad student Evan Stark from the Student Peace Center. Two students are arrested and charged with disorderly conduct for pelting the picketers with snowballs. There are no other incidents, as a Saturday rally of more than 300 and another night's vigil capped the week's events. The weekend vigils continue for about two months. Friedlander and undergraduate history student Jim Hawley, who had created a stir by attending the 1962 founding convention of Students for a Democratic Society as a 17-year-old member of a Communist Front youth group, register the Committee to End the War in Vietnam as a student organization on February 25th. Led back and forth by UW students associated with the Communist and Socialist Workers Parties, the CEWV is the main anti-war group for about the next two years, primarily leafleting, holding meetings and rallies, with some members engaging in disruptive protests. The East Side was where Madison's transit system began in 1892, and it's where the Madison Bus Company's three-month experiment in express bus service starts on February 22nd, Capitol Square to South Stoughton and Buckeye Roads, with only nine stops, and none between the square and the intersection of Milwaukee Street and North Stoughton Road, the trip takes about 20 minutes. Adult fare is 25 cents coming downtown, 30 cents going home. The route is soon serving close to 200 riders per day on nine round trips, popular enough that the company adds a bigger bus, and the City and Public Service Commission approve a west side route to Nakoma Road and Midvale Boulevard. Service will start once the widening of West Washington Avenue from Proudfit to Park Street, part of the triangle in Brittingham Urban Renewal Projects, is completed in late September. And as the month ends, Robert M. LaFollette High School senior Eugene Parks, president of the Madison Youth Council, concludes the First Baptist Church's 18th annual youth series with a talk on the courage to be a real leader. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporters were Mike Mullen from the Wisconsin News Connection. Actually, he was the only one. Special thanks to feature contributors Carousel Baird and a public af- uh, with a public affair and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kederman engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Wuggy-Haup produced it. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. <coughs> Pardon. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>